This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. Juice is the company behind Juicebox, a new kind of platform for presenting data. It's a platform designed to deliver easy-to-read interactive data applications and dashboards. Juicebox turns your valuable analyses into a story for everyday decision makers. For more information on Juicebox or to schedule a demo, visit juiceanalytics.com. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope everyone survived the snowstorm if you're on the East Coast, and I hope you survived the very nice weather if you are basically anywhere else in the world. Excited for a sort of special episode. I have um, two special guests with me today to talk about whether data visualization can elicit empathy from our readers. Uh, I'm joined by Mushan Zaraviv, who is a co-founder of Schwal Design Studio. He's a faculty member at Shankar College. And he's also involved with a public knowledge workshop and recently hosted the Responsible Data Forum in New York City. Uh, Mushan, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. And I'm also joined by Kim Reese, who's the co-founder of Periscopic. Kim, always glad to talk to you. How are you doing? Likewise, John. Um, Great. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on. Um, I want to dive into this topic of whether data visualization can elicit empathy. But before we do so, I want to ask Mushan to talk a little bit about the responsible data forum that took place a little over a week ago in New York City. Um, About 35 people coming together in a room to work for what we were there for about 12 hours working on a whole variety of topics related to working responsibly with data. So, Mushan, can you just tell folks a little bit about why you put that event together and sort of what the what the goals were for the, for the day? Yeah, so uh, the Responsible Data Forum is basically a, a series of events um, organized by the Engine Room, which is an NGO working on uh, technology and um, and social change. And they've been focusing on responsible use of data for uh, for quite some time and attacking it from different angles, whether it be hosting, privacy, security, you, you name it. And for this event, they wanted to address uh, questions of ethics and responsible use of data visualization, especially in the context of social change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been working with uh, the engine room for quite some time. And they've invited me to help them lead, lead this and uh, to facilitate the event itself. So what we were trying to, to get to is to get people in the room who have been uh, grappling with these questions uh, concerning their use of, um, of data visualization um, in the context of social change and have been um, known to be somewhat critical of, uh, of the use and go, go a bit beyond the hype and ask some uh, tough questions. So, indeed, in January 15, we met at uh, ThoughtWorks in, um, in New York City. We also collaborated with uh, Data and Society from New York on this event. And, and these 35 people, for the first half of the day, we try to kind of hash out the, the questions and the issues we want to address. And then for the second half, the different groups, six groups, basically worked on different topics uh, we had a group working on inclusion, a group working on lit- literacy, risk, transparency, uncertainty, and goals. Uh, I think you, John, was was in the inclusion group. If I'm not yep, culture and inclusion. Yep. Good times, stuff coming out, hopefully. Yep. 
there's a lot that is planned right now for, for follow-ups. Um, a couple of people working on uh, on follow-ups. Uh, there are some new collaborations um, coming out of this uh, forum. And part of what we've done towards the forum is to launch this uh, blog post series. And the first, first blog post in the series, trying to uh, write a bit about the questions that we are interested in going into this event, uh, was my blog post about about empathy, and it was titled uh, uh, "Data Viz: The Unempathetic Art." Right, and that spurred some Twitter conversation between a number of us, and we've now seen a few blog posts following up from that event, from all things about ethical questions with data, and then using data visualization for social change, and all sorts of other interesting things. I want to get into one of those blog posts in a minute. But before we do that, let me just ask sort of the general question of whether a data visualization itself, can that raise empathy from our readers? And I want to start with Kim, um, primarily because Periscopic's motto is do good with data. So we're going to talk about one particular visualization Periscopic has done. But Kim, what's your, what's your take on creating visualizations that elicit empathy or, or raise people's feelings about data and, and making social change? Yeah, so uh, at Periscopic, like you said, our tagline is do good with data. So we we touch on a lot of different topics from income inequality to gun violence to climate change, animal conservation, species conservation, that sort of thing. So we need people to react. We need people to sort of get riled up about things, get excited about things, and want to make change in the world. So we definitely, you know, try to get at people's emotions. And it's one of the things that's almost mandatory, I think, in in our line of work. And especially when, you know, you're dealing with numbers and things that people, you know, typically see as dry or boring, um, you know, you really have to imbue them with something to get people at least interested in your subject matter. So, uh, so yeah, we, we really try to uh, evoke empathy. So how does one evoke empathy through a visualization? Does it need images of people? Does it need that individual aspect to it where you talk to an individual person? Or do you think you can do it by showing the data itself? Um, that's a tough area. I think it's it is very difficult to make the numbers come across when you're just showing, you know, an abstract uh, representation of people. Um, but it's also very difficult to show individual people when you're talking about people at scale. You know, if you're talking about a million people, you're talking about a thousand people even. It's very difficult to include imagery that will speak to each individual. And so you really have to think about the individual piece of that data. So I always talk about, you know, looking at the atom of your data. So whether that's a person, it's a child, if it's an animal, if it's, you know, whatever that individual piece is, you you really have to get into the life of that, that being and, and speak to that individual. And then the greater piece will come out of it. So for instance, with our gun viz, each line represents a person and at a certain point, the lines become completely obscured. It's more the onslaught of these lines overlapping each other that gives you that sort of dread, that sinking feeling in your stomach. Because it's just, it just doesn't stop. It's relentless, right? Right. Um, there was a great article written by Jacob Harris about the dot, you know, the person represented as a dot and yeah. how to see people in data. And it brings up a lot of great questions and a lot of great, of great questions about representation. 
And it's tough, you know, it's very tough. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution to representing individuals in data, but I think mm-hmm. that there are, there are, you know what's right when it's right kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, I don't think you need to use imagery. I think color plays a big part. Pacing plays a great part. I think, you know, if you look to filmmaking for some techniques to evoke emotion without exact imagery um there are a lot of techniques in animation and and filmmaking Mm -hmm. that work really well and mushan you led this whole event at rdf do you think a lot of the things that we were talking about led us to a path leading us to similar conclusions that it's not necessarily about highlighting an individual story but about showing uh the different paths or the different stories of everybody in in just in a visual way but not necessarily using quotations or animation or pictures I think you know there, there were uh, different opinions in the room, as we uh, as was pretty clear by the by the first uh, spectrogram uh, experiment uh, we had there, uh, where people quite argued with each other. Um, but the the sense was that I think most of the people in the room wanted were not so keen on giving up on things like empathy. Oh, so excited about the big picture surpassing the individual story. There was some some people in the room interested in in storytelling, not only from the perspective of data, as in data storytelling, but also like storytelling as a as a point of departure rather than uh, only statistics. Another thing that that is important to say is that uh, within within the group in the room, there were people that that had more experience with working with data visualization for uh, storytelling and advocacy. And others had more experience with using data visualization for uh, investigation, mm-hmm. which I think kind of created quite different uses. But when we were talking about empathy, I think we were talking more about the advocacy. I think Kim would agree with me that m- many of the works that you guys are doing are, are advocacy-oriented. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think um, what got me into this um, debate was Actually, a different debate on on Twitter. People getting angry on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> somebody got somebody was wrong. No. Uh, no one on this call, but someone was wrong. <laughs> no, no. no. Um, but but there was this uh, Popular Science published this infographic commemorating the seventieth anniversary to the Hiroshima bomb, mm-hmm. and Kate Crawford poke the database people on her list to, to kind of um, ask what what do they think about the aesthetization of um, of whole and and the conversation quickly escalated into people not liking it at all and there was go- some going back and forth but I think what Alberto Cairo said really struck me and I can quote actually what he was saying he said it's it's like saying that no matter how good your writing is it can't convey mathematical proofs as effectively as mathematical notation. This is simply because equation, uh, equations were created in part with, with that goal. I'm just very skeptical to the idea that data visualization is a medium that can convey or even care about conveying or increase empathy. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a great discussion, though. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Right. So, so, so um, when he was arguing that visualization... And empathy don't go well together. It, it kind of—I didn't—I've never thought about it that way. And 
it was something I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. And Alberto and I uh, started talking about it off, uh, off Twitter. And uh, this is something he actually writes about in his upcoming book. And there he's actually quoting Paul Bloom, the psychologist who wrote a very interesting um, article and is writing a book about empathy. And the title of, of the article was Against Empathy. So uh, what Paul Bloom says is not, not only uh, Paul Bloom is not t- talking about um, visualization specifically, but he's, but he's saying that empathy is actually counterproductive. And the quote I've been using in my uh, in my article was, uh, "Our public de- decisions will be fairer and more moral once we put empathy aside. Our policies are are, are improved when we appreciate that a hundred deaths are are worse than one, e- even if we know the name of the one. And when we acknowledge that the life of someone is a fa- is in a faraway country is worth as much as the life of our neighbor." Um, even if our emotions pull uh, pull us in a different direction, so that was even more provocative. As, a, as in, it's not not only a question of whether uh, visualization uh, can convey empathy, but the question whether we should even care about empathy when we're doing the visualization. I don't know this Bloom guy, but that's complete <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> okay, I, I read that. <laughs> I read that too, but and that irks me more than anything on the planet. That's saying we can't have emotions, and because emotions cloud our decisions, I think the complete opposite is what the kind of world I would want to live in, where our emotions make our decisions for us. You see a kid fall down on the street, and you say, "Oh, that's too bad," and walk away. I mean, that's bullshit. You know, like emotions should be guiding us and telling us how how to create our world. So to be fair, Paul Bloom uh, goes on and says that, that rather than empathy, we should focus on compassion. Because uh, empathy, because it's not about us uh, empathizing with someone, it's, it's about someone. So, so he, in the case of the, the kid falling down the stairs, he would try to feel compassion for the kid rather than empathy. He's concerned about people focusing on empathy and not acting. Hmm. So empathy without action is. Yeah. So empathy that without action. So empathy can get can get us to be kind of frozen because we're just empath, empathizing so much, rather than um, understanding the position of compassion, which kind of works better with the rational rationalism that uh, that Paul Bloom is is getting to, and that I think. Um, Alberto Cairo argues that is uh, the the forte of uh, visualization. So, so empathy with action is compassion. So this so this leads nicely into into a post that that Stephen Lambert wrote after RDF Viz that used periscopic gun visualization as an example. That he he really likes the visualization, but he what he found lacking was that there was no links or instructions on what to do next that yes i now care about this topic but but what do i do do next so i guess the next question is is it the responsibility of data visualization creators to help the reader go on to the next step so kim i'll let i'll let you start with that since it's since it was one of your projects Uh, yeah, so that's a tough one i mean for a lot of our clients we really press them to have action 
have a call in action, you know, let guide people to do something. Mm-hmm. And especially for the clients that we have, we they do have goals that they need to meet. So we press them to, you know, have a call in action. Sometimes they don't, and it's more just to be informative. Mm-hmm. With the GunViz specifically, we didn't, we decided not to have a call to action because the piece was more about inclusion and not so prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't meant to be directly about gun control, although it definitely has those that leaning, and it's kind of obvious that it's meant to be about gun control, but we didn't want to beat people over the head with it. Because the other problem you have, if you have a deliberate call to action, and it's somebody who's not sort of in that choir, you know, you're preaching yeah. to the choir, typically when you have a call to action, somebody who's already inclined to do that thing you want them to do. Right. Um, so sometimes when you have a call to action, it's a big turnoff and people are just like, oh, the, oh, it's one of those people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to read this or look at this thing. Um, so with the gun piece, we deliberately left that out. And, um, and it actually spurred a lot of really interesting conversations with people on the other side of the fence. It, you know, somewhat succeeded in being inclusive and sort of starting a conversation rather than being prescriptive. You know, I don't necessarily think everything needs a call to action, right? Mm -hmm. So that article by Steve Lambert, um, great article, but I do take issue with this mandatory call to action. You know, there's a, he has a line in there that says, um, if there's no call to action, uh, there's nowhere for me to follow through on my outrage or despair, no government official to pressure, no legislation to support, no number to call, no organization to join. (laughs) Boo-hoo, you know, like, what, am I your fucking mother? Do I need to, like, buy you a postage stamp to put on your envelope? Do I need to freaking type your Google search to figure out who your congressperson is? You know, like, come on, there are obvious ways to, you know, figure out what gun control group to join, you know? It's a big issue that's our country forever you know right. you know who your congress people are you can easily find out you know i would take some some issue with that because i think um in the interaction design hat that we often wear and in interactive visualization it's a part of the thing and that that's a part of what you do you don't wait for people to go do google searches now you do aim at a certain flow but but the question is I've been I've been teaching a class uh, to students about activism and and the internet, and at some point they've learned that they cannot use the term the term raising awareness next next to me without me going crazy. Uh, <laughs> with all due respect, like, uh, raising awareness for what? The problem with raising awareness and the great thing about it is that you can't really measure it. So you raise awareness and you feel good about yourself. Um, but but it, it kind of looks like you've addressed the question, but you haven't really done that. And nobody can call you on it because nobody can say that you haven't raised awareness. <laughs> so my students don't say raise awareness next to me. <laughs> but I think that's something that Steve was uh, bringing up in his article is the problem of compassion fatigue. There's something so powerful about your piece that you feel so, and, and there's something very depressing about it. And, and that's a part of, uh, of what makes it so strong. As activists, should we be depressing people or should we be pushing them to action? So, yeah, you, you're not anybody's mother in that, uh, in that sense, or fucking mother in that sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is the goal of this, of this conversation if it doesn't change the reality on the ground? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one. I, I, I think the answer would be different if we were a Brady organization or something, yeah. you know, like if we were an organization that had a deliberate, you know, here's a policy we want changed, here's yeah. some legislation we want to push through, you know, then we would have probably had a direct call to action, you know, send this on to your representative, right. blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think there's a space for the pieces that bring up questions, the pre- pieces that bring numbers to light in a different way, in a way that nobody's seen them before, in a way that nobody's thought about them before. Um, and I think that's what the gun piece did, is that it it sort of, you know, punched in the stomach with how many people get killed every year with, uh, you know, by people with guns. You know, and that's all it was meant to do, is mm-hmm. to say, okay, lot, people are getting killed, lots of kids are getting killed, you know, lots of young people Here's the live, you know, here are the years that are lost of, of people's lives because of gun violence. You know, it's sort of meant to take a different angle on it and to make people think a little bit. And hopefully, you know, it's slow change. It's not like I think in our country, especially, we have this immediate, we need immediate action. We need immediate gratification. And if we don't get things signed and put a fucking paper in the mail, you know, like, then it's a failure, you know, but is that a failure to to raise a question to have people look at this, you know, look at a topic in a different way? You know, like we got a lot of people who were gun advocates who wrote to us. I had conversations on Facebook, on Twitter um, with people I never would have had conversations with otherwise. And they were meaningful. They weren't just, you know, trolling. It was they were real, meaningful conversations. And so that to me is makes it worthwhile, you know. And how important is the reputation or the previous work of an organization. So Kim, you sort of drew this this distinction between the type of products that Periscopic does versus a gun advocacy group, you know, pro or con like Brady or other groups. How important is the the previous work and the the reputation of an organization, both in terms of their political leaning and the type of work that they do with the data when they're creating pieces where the purpose may be to draw empathy or to highlight a particular issue that may not be part of their even their core their core mission i think you know one of the frustrations is if you align it too closely with your communication your standard communication your standard calls to action that you know you're only going to be preaching to the choir and or the counterpart to that raising awareness (laughs) (laughs) michon's favorite term (laughs) which i also have an issue with because it is it's nothing it's basically saying nothing i want to you know wake up every day you know whatever (laughs) you i want the sky to be blue oh great wonderful you know hopefully someday the sky is blue it's a meaningless statement and there's no measurement and clicks don't count and who knows what eyeballs mean and you know it's it's kind of pointless so I think there's a lot of room to be a little bit outside of that action lane mm-hmm. and to be really provoking and try new, you know, even alternative mediums, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people are just stuck on the web and stuck in their own website. And it's like, well, the people who are, are coming to your website are the people who always come to your yeah. website. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, how are you going to get more people? How are you going to get new people? How are you going to change minds? So I think if we keep preaching to the camps that we're in, it's really just sort of treading water. So, Mushan, I would guess you would agree with that at least to, to some extent, right? I mean, part of the first exercise at RDF was making provocative statements and getting people to line up with that statement or with another statement. I think uh, Kim is right about the, um, the danger of calling to action and kind of defining the, the boundaries of the camp. And, and I think, uh, and I don't 
necessarily have uh, a quick solution to, to something like that. But th- this is definitely something that I feel we we should think about and we should continuously explore. I would have loved to see uh, the not, not only works that I come across, but my work be kind of getting the best of both worlds, getting people who wouldn't necessarily be discussing to discuss something on the um, uh, on the platform that data can give us can give us, which is this uh, common ground and and this somewhat uh, you know the data is there, let's discuss it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But but then also kind of get them to agree with me <laughs> and go do what I want them to do. <laughs> uh, so there's no doubt that there's dissension. That's what makes the the question of using empathy also hit same tension like and i think one of the issues with with empathy and visualization is that we're looking at a chart we we automatically kind of trying to solve the puzzle and it gets us into this um, kind of rationalist um, framework and uh, and i think a lot of the work that you guys have been doing with the gun violence uh, piece or, or gun death piece is exactly use uh, that visualization or or add to that visualization the things that would add the empathy and would add your opinion um, and and your perspective to it, and 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 this balance um, it, we haven't talked about it, but but in 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 the article that I wrote, I used the I, I used your work um, specifically as an example of wh- when I think empathy is introduced in a very in a very elegant way, and in a way that doesn't uh, doesn't turn the visualization into some kind of uh, propaganda, yeah. or um, not in a bad way anyway. So this tension is there, because we've been using, we've been thinking about visualization as such a strong tool for advocacy, but if the price of that is either uh, devoiding of any emotion in in this uh, kind of high law of uh, of uh, neutral data. Or, on the other hand, kind of uh, blatant propaganda, then we're kind of losing a lot of of nuance uh, between the two extremes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we lose some of the objectivity that people value. Well, we don't have objectivity in general, <laughs> <laughs> especially not especially not in uh, in advocacy. Right. I, I, and you know that, that's another spiel. I generally think we should. Go beyond the, the this culture, the thing, the things that data, this objective thing that we're just like bringing into the conversation, and, and, and that's where the conversation ends. But d- d- data is just another part of language, and we use data in our arguments. And you can make a strong argument when you use data because you have some foundation for your argument. But but the fact that you're using data doesn't make it less of an argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think if we're clear about that, and no matter how neutral or objective our visualization might look like, it is still an opinion. It is still a, a, a statement uh, in visual language than uh, verbal or textual uh, language. Um, and, and if we're clear about communicating the, our argument as, as an argument, I, I think ethically we're more than okay about presenting our opinion explicitly. I actually think it's, uh, it's more... Uh, ethical to be explicit about your opinion than to kind of hide it around a, uh, under a shred of, uh, of objectivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think it's something that, you know, most people, they see the word data, they see, you know, things, numbers represented visually, and they just say, oh, this is supposed to be factual. This is a chart. It must be right. factual. And once more people understood that it, it was part of language, I think then they people wouldn't get so riled up about bringing emotion into data visualization because mm. it's language. It's a, it's a means to convey an opinion. It's a means to convey an argument. It's you can take it or leave it. You can twist it a different way right. and look at the counter. You know, the gun viz is, it's about gun murders in America. But if you, you know, compared it to car deaths in America, it would look like a totally different animal. We chose not to because ours wasn't about contextualizing death in America. It was about gun violence specifically. But, you know, if you had a different opinion, you could certainly change the visualization still very factually but make it look completely different for your needs. So I think that emotions are fine in visualization, but you do have to read them as though they are language. Yeah. And I think it's really clear in, in, in your piece that, especially in the part where you, you did a pretty bold move by, by using a completely different data set of trying to assess how many years they have lost, the, all, mm-hmm. all of these victims. And that is uh, a pretty unorthodox way of, uh, of uh, mixing data. But, but at the same time, if you don't talk about the years that they've lost, that's just kind of giving in to, to, the, to the narrative of that person is dead, there's nothing to speak about the years that they could have lived. Uh, so so it's, not, it's not like even the, the reality of the death uh, can tell the whole story because that's what happened. A part of what happened is what didn't get the chance to happen. Uh, and to do something like that, you need to, ta- to take an opinion, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to take a stand and, and say, I know this is not reality. I, I know that, that the, li- the life that they could have lived is not a part of reality, but I think it, it needs to be assessed be- because, because we are protesting against what happens in reality. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. That's very well put. Um, I, I, actually, in the uh, when we're talking about the um, uh, one thing that I do agree with uh, Alberto Cairo is that is that um, visualization and empathy don't naturally go together. Um, you actually need to deliberately uh, use and invoke empathy, and that would not happen by you just um, just representing data visually. Um, and I think you you guys with uh, with a gun death piece. Um, have done quite a lot of uh, of work on adding that drama and humanizing each each dot and each arc to add that. Um, so, and we we can we can start we can we can argue about the, when does the visualization end and the extra layers uh, that may include empathy begin. But at the core of the argument, I think uh, I think there is a problem about uh, visualization and the human perspective. Uh-huh. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that I think the moment you choose to do something with the numbers is the moment you've added, you've taken a stance and decided that, you know, even if you just made a line chart, you've chosen to represent a certain number in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever color you choose, even if it's black or gray or what have you, it's still a color. Now, those are minimal things that you can do, but even the fact that you're choosing to say something about a number, you know, I could have said something about the number of people killed in 2010 with guns. I think it's like 10,000 something. 
But the fact that I chose to even say anything about that number, even if I'm not visualizing it, I'm still telling somebody for a specific reason, right? Yeah, I agree that that you're making making a statement and expressing something or communicating something, but for it to invoke empathy, um, I, I think in most cases, you would need to do that deliberately. Unlike, you know, speaking face to face, for example. Actually, w- one of the strongest articles that were written towards um, uh, the Responsible Data Forum is uh, Catherine Dignazio, What Would Feminist Data Visualization Look Like? Which I really recommend everybody reads. She actually brings up uh, Donna Haraway and a quote from her. And she's talking about, uh, about the idea of, uh, uh, Donna Haraway calls it, calls mapping, uh, the God trick. The God <laughs> trick. So, so, so it's this trick of seeing with no body. So an eye that sees but doesn't have a body, a body of its own. So that's true about the visualization at large because in a lot of cases, the, the position of the speaker and that's uh, part of the of the problem that people don't see visualization as part of speech, because because the speaker is hidden. Um, right. You don't you don't read text. Uh, you don't you don't you don't uh, hear their voice. Or you don't see their faces. You see this abstract representation of mathematics, and, and and it aligns itself with something beyond human. Even though we completely agree that it's not it's not beyond human. So so. So I think you need to uh, situate the human within it um, deliberately for, mm-hmm. for there to be to be this presence. Yeah, I, it's funny that you bring up this God concept. I'm going to be giving a talk exactly about this because I think that we, you know, there's been so much of a hubbub about uh, storytelling and data visualization and, and, you know, is it good? Is it bad? How to do it? Da, da, da. We're all storytellers and blah, blah, blah. And I'm so over it. <laughs> and I realized the reason it bugs me so much is because storyteller, the term storyteller really diminishes what we're doing. We are mm. gods. We are the gods of data. We are creating these realities that are, you know, could be completely out of context. You know, whether we're good gods or bad gods or, you know, just, you know, gods of whatever. We're, we are creating things that aren't necessarily stories. We're not telling stories. We're creating realities based on numbers and concepts and abstract things and Mm -hmm. and so i think it's i mean i think we have to start grappling with some of these big big questions Mm -hmm. yeah that's exactly what uh, the responsible data forum was all about i should have participated you should have (laughs) should have have been there um (laughs) well this uh so i really liked this episode because i really didn't have to say anything um this was so i (laughs) I got to be like everybody else and just listen to you two uh, talk about it. this is uh, fascinating. And we, I think we really just scratched the surface, right? We didn't talk about, uh, just thinking back to the RDF forum, we didn't talk about a lot of things we talked about there, things about uncertainty and about risk with data and what we create and, and, and the culture of people who are creating, who we're creating for. So I think I'm going to have to uh, invite you well, both well, back. Well, um, there will be a series of, um, of uh, video interviews that is coming right. The, the RDF is, and there are still quite a few blog posts in the pipe, yep. pipeline, quite a few projects. So uh, if you if you follow the policies, they will uh, retweet everything. Yeah, retweet everything, and everything will go up on the uh, on the now long list of things to to accompany the show. Um, Kim Mushan, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. This has been uh, really fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. 
And thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this somewhat longer than usual episode, but uh, truly fascinating. Um, So thanks everyone for listening. And of course, if you have comments or suggestions, please uh, shoot me a note on the website or on Twitter um, or via email. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. For 10 years, Juice has been helping clients like Aetna, the Virginia Chamber of Commerce, Notre Dame University, and U.S. News and World Report create beautiful, easy-to-understand visualizations. Be sure to learn more about Juicebox, a new kind of platform for presenting data at juiceanalytics.com. And be sure to check out their book, Data Fluency, now available on Amazon.